This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to In Liberty and Health. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. I have perhaps been slacking on the foreign policy topics as of late because I uh, um, just haven't really had the guests lined up, but a lot has happened recently. I'm really, really stoked to talk to uh, a returning guest today about all things foreign policy in the global south today. So uh, make sure you go to the description below to find all the links where you can find my guests, where you can find myself, what I got going on, and all that good stuff. And um, yeah, guys, let's do it. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Brad, welcome back, brother. How you doing? Um, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, of course. So um, a lot has happened. It's been about two months since we last spoke. It was a brief talk, but um, I'm glad to finally have you back and we can go for a little bit longer this time. Uh, you know, unfortunately not the wife's birthday. <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. it seems like the world has exploded. I mean, you know, everyone's freaking out about Ukraine and then now all of a sudden uh, the coup in Niger too, that also happened. And then, uh, yeah, all the stuff going off in Israel. So uh, yeah, what have, uh, what have you been writing about lately? Um, well, I, I did write about Niger extensively. There was also a coup in Gabon, though it um, didn't have so much to do with the uh, other things going on in the world as much as it being like a long running kleptocracy that people, I don't know, were kind of insulted by them stealing another election. Um, I wrote about, you know, Zelensky's visit to New York, actually right before the whole Canada Nazi problem that they ran into. Um, and then... I mean, the thing that I just worked on a bunch, uh, I wrote a really big like investigative piece about the Zaka Rescue Organization in Israel, which has been a major source of a lot of the reports about some of the worst atrocities you've been hearing about. And it, it turns out they have an extremely sordid history with a, a decade, more than a decade, but mostly in the past decade of just insane allegations of corruption, like both financially and morally. And it all comes together to that... Uh, the conclusion that you should not consider them credible on any topic like anyone associated with that organization 
Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've had your hands full. Um, now, as far as like the Israel-Palestine stuff, um, when it comes to Israel, my impression and understanding always is that like the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, normally like the bad guys. Like we hear about Hamas and what they do. But I mean, the Israeli Defense Force generals call when they kill Palestinians, they call it mowing the grass. They also have I, I can't remember the exact names, like the different doctrines, but like they don't deal. They don't negotiate for hostages. They're the killed. Hannibal Doctrine. That's it. The Hannibal Doctrine, yeah. So they're just they slaughter their hostages if they're being held by Hamas or. Um, I mean, you know, people say that, but in 2011 they traded 1,043 Palestinian prisoners for a single Israeli soldier. So I mean, I, there's no evidence the Hannibal Doctrine has ever actually been implemented in any meaningful way. That's just something they all argue about for the last 30 years. Mm, okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, just uh, and then the other thing was like the during the march of return when um they were gunning people down who were going for the fence. Um, so like I said, my impression always was that uh the IDF was kind of like the main bad guys here. But that's interesting that there was that's like a nonprofit charity you said. Yeah, it's uh. It's like a rescue organization. They, uh, I mean, it's basically Haredi Jews, like ultra-Orthodox, you call them in English, but they don't like that translation, um, who, you know, traditionally don't serve in the military in Israel. And they go on what they call motorcycles, but they're actually three-wheelers to, um, like, terrorism sites and other accident sites. And they help collect bodies and identify, like, body parts because under jewish custom they're supposed to be buried with all their body parts and blood in under 24 hours hmm. so there's a bunch of different organizations but the main one was started by this guy named yehuda meshi zahav who someone once referred to as the Haredi jeffrey epstein um so they had a bunch of financial corruption problems of running a bunch of different organizations named this in, including in the u.s i mean i did this big investigation on it showing that their u.s fundraising organizations have never recorded transferring any money to any zaka organization in israel mm -hmm. um but then in israel they did the same thing to like avoid paying their debts they set up a fake organization because they were in trusteeship and were being forced to pay their debts so they just set up a fake zaka and took donations on that and then didn't pay any of their debts and but yeah, then the guy, uh, he won the Israel Award and then a big report came out, like seven different allegations of just different kinds of sexual abuse dating back to 1982. And way more came forward and then he, he like tried to kill himself, but went into a coma and then died like a year later. And that's I mean, it's it's a really long report because I had to do a bunch of like financial investigation in the United States. And then they've been really thoroughly investigated by the Israeli media, especially Haaretz and um and the Times of Israel and Channel 14, I think it was. But yeah, it was, it's a crazy story. And they're still using them like they're credible. They've raised over $2 million since October wow. 7th to their U.S. fundraising organizations that there's no evidence send any of that money to any Zaka work in Israel. Mm -hmm. So where's the money gone? Has it gone to just kind of people's pockets or? Well, so this guy was, I mean, staying getting week-long stays in five-star hotels while um, he... Uh, while he was facing personal bankruptcy proceedings as well. And then was stiffing some of those hotels. He also spent quite a lot of money on grooming people. He was sexually abusing. He was always buying them a lot of different stuff. So, I mean, that must've cost a good amount of money over the years, but in, in short, uh, just him and his two brothers were just robbing the place. Essentially, as far as anyone knows, they claim that they gave a lot of the money to various soccer related things and just didn't record it properly. And that they had a legal right to do that <laughs> in the U S uh, it's funny in the U.S., the guy that was head of one of these fundraising organizations that um, I, uh, I think his last name is Mermelstein. 
it's one that you can't really prove is connected to them in any way. They just say that's what they are, but, um, but it's complicated. Anyway, he's like in the mayor's office in New York city now mm-hmm. as their international business office. He's like a big, like high level appointed administrator in the New York city mayor's office now. Oh, geez. Wow. Yeah. That makes, um, that, that makes sense. Um, I wonder how he's feeling about all the, uh, pro-Palestine marches right now. They're probably, uh, probably not too good. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, he's not actually Israeli at all. He's a Ukrainian, like a Russian uh, Ukrainian Jewish immigrant. So, you know, like okay. Zelensky, except didn't, except Zelensky didn't immigrate to America, but, uh, regardless, I don't know. I mean, it's in New York, like there are more Jews in New York than in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv combined. So I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what has kind of been your read on the whole Israel Palestine issue? And, um, maybe we could start with like the hospital because that's a relatively recent event. I talked a little bit with Misty about this. Um, curious kind of your thoughts and what you got from that, because it's been very, very widely debated very reasonably. So, um, well, so it's clearly the case. I mean, so I was kind of saved from making any mistakes and discussing that because I was so deep writing this really difficult article and I was close to publishing. I didn't have any energy to deal with it when that happened. Um, you know, my instinct was to believe the reports. It's like a crazy thing to say that a hospital collapsed from an airstrike when it didn't. Mm-hmm. It's quite obvious that, you know, the Palestinian health ministry and everyone else really overplayed what happened initially, though it's also very obvious something exploded there in an area that there were surely a lot of people around. Um, That Channel 4 report about the audio forensics and the direction and, you know, the crater impact seemed convincing that it came from Israel's direction. Yeah. Canada and I think the UK say that they have their own forensics that say it didn't. Um, I actually have an article I just submitted to the Libertarian Institute about this um, that I mean, it basically argues that it's not, there's not really any point in getting caught up in these details because the only point of, you know, them making a big deal about these specific atrocity stories is to make people angry so that they support more war. The reality is that we know that Hamas killed a lot of Israeli civilians and we know that Israeli airstrikes target civilian targets, you know, and really everything else is just details. Like it's, it's, it's just a matter of continuing the cycle of violence or choosing to do something else. Like the worst atrocity stories don't change the bigger picture at all, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually a pretty good takeaway. Um, the thing that was kind of interesting about it, though, is that Israel lied quite a bit when it came because that um, recording, I believe, was false. They put out a false. Oh, recording. yeah. That was really false. Yeah. And then um, they had also told that hospital to evacuate. They hit the hospital before. They told that specific section of Gaza to evacuate. And then all of a sudden, this hospital ends up drone struck and they try to blame it all on Hamas. And um, I'm not saying that they didn't do it, but like, I don't know. Israel has a history. The IDF, more specifically, has a history of drone striking hospitals, killing civilians, and doing yeah. something like this and they even did it within the last week or so so uh, and then they lie about it like if you weren't guilty then you shouldn't have to lie about it well yeah i mean in yeah i mean at the same time governments just lie habitually it's it's what they do so they very often i mean i mean i don't really believe in lying in general because i don't i mean i might like withhold saying the truth or something but in general once you're actually making stuff up it only causes you problems you know yeah Uh, like in your personal life or as an organization or anything else, you know, if you just get ahead of it, it's usually not nearly as bad as the shit you have to go through to deal with it. Anyway, um, you know, Sue, the thing is that Gaza is really a cutoff isolated area. You know, it's, it's hard to get in and out. Um, And like not a lot of international organizations work there and Hamas has 
pretty, at least relatively tight control over who is there. Whereas you take, you know, like Ukraine, like a lot of misinformation has came out of it, but it, it was a relatively open country and also, you know, a ramshackle, like horrible place. So it was pretty full of various international organizations that, you know, yeah, they might be funded by the National Endowment for Democracy or George Soros or whatever else. But there was at least like a lot of international people there in general, whereas like Hamas has a much tighter control of in, of information coming out of Gaza. And like regardless of anything about Hamas specifically, they're a partisan in the conflict. So, you know, you can't really you can't really trust anything they say. You can't trust anything Israel says. There's not I mean, there's not really a lot to be done to get to the bottom of these specific issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty understandable. And I, I like your perspective on it because uh, my bias is clearly against Israel. And I've been very, very upfront and honest about that. And I think a lot of kind of the anti-war libertarians are um, I, somebody that you might follow on Twitter, uh, Phil Labonte, who I who I really, really like. Um, <laughs> he said, I, I don't think there's a lot of people who actually care about Palestinians. I think most of the people just hate Jewish people. And I'm like, oh, I saw that. A, yeah. Yeah. Like that's a retarded take, man. Come on. I think most people dislike the Israeli government because they're a very, very corrupt government and they treat people very, very badly. And we, uh, they direct a lot of our foreign policy and have a lot of influence over our own government. I think that's where the hatred come from. Snutch is because they say, oh, the Jews. Like, that's, I mean, that's there's, problem. there's a lot of different things going on. Like I, I would say that it's pretty obvious that, you know, the crazy John Hagee evangelical Christians that are, you know, really strong supporters of Israel clearly actually yeah. hate Jews and are trying to use them as pawns and weird messianic end days nonsense, you know, um, uh, probably some other people, you know, do actually dislike Jews. Uh, I mean, the people that are holding like queers for Palestine signs clearly don't care about anyone but themselves and are just incredibly narcissistic and want to, you know, associate themselves. Yeah. They want to associate themselves with like any way that they can compare themselves to people who are actually oppressed. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much dead on the inside. I'm just interested in strategy. So I, I, I struggle to care about any, any, you know, in, I mean, it's very difficult for me to have any emotional reaction to these things. And honestly, I try not to. Um, but I mean, my, my view on this broader issue is that, so as much as that, what I hate being lied to though, that is one thing that, you know, gives me emotion. So like what drives me crazy about Israel is that all of their arguments are absolute nonsense. They're like, Oh, well, you know, we're indigenous here, even though it we have recorded history showing that we moved into the area, which, you know, disqualifies us from being indigenous. And you, you say that they like don't believe in the Bible or Josephus as records, but they're like, oh, well, you know, a modern Israeli is related to some set of bones from 8000 years ago. And it's like, well, your argument, that's your argument is why you deserve the land. But you don't care at all that you kicked Palestinians out at such a time that living people remember it happening. And, you know, they know which specific houses were yeah. theirs. Like it's so like every argument they use is just maddeningly stupid and they'll say literally anything to justify what they're doing. And, you know, my view on this is that the only way anyone comes to control any land is by being able to militarily defend it. This is how everyone got their country in the first place. So I'm perfectly fine with Israel having as much land as they're able to hold, but it's also not our problem to help them do that. They provide us nothing. They're a massive liability to the United States security. So they, people think it's somehow necessary to like fight terrorism to support Israel. It's like, why do you think the terrorists hate us? It's specifically because we support Israel. That's the number (laughs) one thing that draws their fire, you know? So 
like I find every aspect of it very frustrating, but at, at the same time, um, that this, it just is what a government is, is, you know, an area that you're able to take over and hold by force. And it, as far as I'm concerned, as long as Israel is able to do that, they have as much right to the land as anyone else, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I get that perspective. Um, I, I guess I would come at it more of a, a private property standpoint where like if they negotiate with Palestinians who have been there historically for a lot longer and they say, Hey, you know, we're willing to buy this land off of you and inhabit it or come up with some kind of solution. Then yeah. But I mean, like, I'm not willing to the point of saying like, we should go over there and militarily defend Palestinians. My I'm the same as you like keep the U S out of it. Let them figure that out because it's not our business. And like you said, Israel's a major liability. Yeah. Well, and I mean, main, yeah. The vast majority of people on both sides, um, you know, were born there and didn't actually take part in the events leading to this. But of course, both sides of people that do a lot of bad things now, which they then are responsible for and cannot blame on their ancestors. But the, the fact is that in the long run, Israel has no chance of surviving unless it regionally integrates in, into the Middle East. It can't be right. some outpost among hostile territory that's right. never worked for anyone. I mean, throughout history, it's always the case that one way or another you get, you know, thrown out. Often you get slaughtered on the way out. Mm -hmm. The other fact is Israel is the least safe country for Jews to live in of any country yes. with a major Jewish Correct. population. So they keep coming up with this like, oh, well, we need somewhere safe to live. And it's like, well, I don't know, go anywhere else then, because this is the least safe place you could be. And, you know, and the what Netanyahu has had to do to save power by, you know, empowering these various religious fanatics that, you know, believe they have to control all, the, all of the land from the river to the sea and constantly expanding settlements and making all of these other problems has made Israel massively less safe. You know, they had like 10, 25 total battalions in the West Bank just to deal with the problems caused by expanded settlements when mm -hmm. there should have been like 10 of those should have been guarding the border. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's people keep saying, this is what really drives me crazy, is they keep saying Israel has a right to defend itself. And it's like, okay, why didn't it do that in the first place? Mm -hmm. Like, like, like bombing civilians in Gaza has nothing to do with defending itself. It should have been defending itself before it was attacked. That's when it had a right to defend itself. Right. Well, and, and on top of that, they were raiding this, um, what, the Alaska mosque. I think it was on October 6th before the attack. Um, I, I don't know the exact dates off the top of my head, but I mean, you know, that's not really considered defending yourself. But, uh, you know, like you said, Israel attacks their neighbors. They're very, very hostile to the people around them. And, and you know, who, I don't know the exact where this begins, if it was, you know, the Muslims around the area or the Islamic, you know, jihadists, as people might say, that were attacking them first. But like, I don't know if you plant a country on top of a land and then begin to, you know, do a Nakba and start to, you know, move all these people and displace people who were originally there. It kind of makes sense that they're not really going to like you after that. Uh, let's see. My buddy uh, Kevin said the big the biblical claim to the land is no more for me than Charlie and the chocolate factory. Tell me that my people historically are at all Washington, D.C. But yeah, yeah like, exactly. It's, it's, it's nonsense. Yeah. I actually hate all of these ancient historical arguments about who deserves right. of what land like in, in general. They're an I mean, appeal they're to religion nonsense. that we don't like that neither you or I believe in and that probably those people don't believe in either. So, like, yeah, well, it's, I, it's ridiculous. Uh, they just I mean. Honestly, as crazy as the, uh, you know, loony leftists in the street talking about colonialism are, it's very obviously a colonial mindset of like, this is our outpost of civilization against these, you know, barbarians, you know, that live in the Middle East. So we have to support them. It's all, it's all very bad. But, you know, I don't know. There's, 
not any any good solution especially you know the politicians on both sides like hardliners always benefit from this kind of conflict because it stops the people from noticing their own problems israel's really internally divided Mm -hmm. um you know there were mass protests against netanyahu too recently oh yeah all year um i mean all of 2023 there were mass protests like every weekend um of huge numbers of people it's i mean i wrote about that in march it's actually a really interesting situation because i like political theory but in, in short israel never got uh they never agreed on a formal constitution so they're ruled by a series of what are called basic laws which is not inherently a bad thing um just in a political theory sense but the issue is that their court is separate and it's not really governed by anything and it's not in any way responsive to the legislature it selects its own new members basically from within like a guild of lawyers and so it's the bastion of of like the secular city liberals that you know have advanced degrees and have one kid in their late 30s you know it's like the same kind of people we have in america it's like (laughs) it's like the bastion of that class of people that are so freaking annoying um which is a big part of israel's population you know they're all like brooklynites that moved there that's where these people came from um you know they're like the, the the bourgeoisie and whatnot so it's it's them versus the uh the more religious poorer people with larger families that uh do much better at electoral politics but have no say in the courts so they've been it's been the case that they had this reasonableness doctrine where the court could overturn things just based on the idea that they're patently unreasonable which they could base on absolutely mm-hmm. anything so they're not governed by any constitution so they're trying to like get rid of that and then make it so that the uh justices are more of them are selected some of them are selected by the legislature but without the reasonableness doctrine the court has basically no ability to overturn laws because there's no constitution that they can say it's violating Mm -hmm. so uh basically netanyahu was trying to make the country like bare majoritarianism like you know like full like post-revolutionary france style democracy basically where there's like no protection for civil rights and you can just do absolutely anything if you get put together a coalition that will agree on it you know so yeah it's, it's really interesting but they, their whole country was massively divided by this to the extent that people were talking about the risk of civil war because um you know there's a risk that someone in the military gets one order from the supreme court and one order from the prime minister and different generals decide to follow different ones or whatever you wow. know wow yeah so let's see. This is a modern conquering a land with religion is a scapegoat. It's been that way for a while. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably correct. But yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I could see that being absolutely disastrous. But yeah, like when you see videos and stuff of uh, Israel, it seems like, you know, kind of like the, <laughs> it looks very, very nice. But like you said, it's a very, very unsafe place because you're literally this small country in the middle of all these hostile countries that want you to be gone. But then, I mean, at, at the other on the other foot um you know they they go assassinate iranian generals they bomb the airports in syria they you know slaughter people in gaza and all over palestine and then they're also kind of fucking with lebanon too so you know it's it's kind of like it's just a mess man the, the whole middle east situation is just such a clusterfuck and you know they've spent millions and trillions of dollars on trying to keep that you know all the wars over there going well, yeah, the U.S. has given Israel a quarter of a trillion dollars since its founding, yes. and they didn't even mm-hmm. bother to guard their border. 
Yeah, it, it is kind of funny that we funded them more than probably any other country in the entire world. And they do have a very advanced military, but apparently not advanced enough to heed a warning from Egypt to uh, look at their border. And I, like, I don't entirely fault them for that because I'm sure they get a lot of like intelligence. So it's kind of hard to buffer like what's noise from what's actually real. I think that's probably what happened. And then they figured out, you know, they got caught with their pants down, essentially. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, they were divided because of the because uh, of the protests, and then mm-hmm. because Netanyahu kept letting settlements expand because he needed it to win over ultra-religious parties for you know narrow coalitions. Then they had to move all of the the troops there, and then all of these other things went drastically wrong. But even just like not a matter of intelligence, like they it was 1,500 Hamas fighters, and they didn't have the general troops in the area to deal with it on their border with Gaza City, an area of a population of two million people. Right. Like, what would they have done if, you know, like, I don't know, they did the storm area 51. They can't shoot us all at once thing and just bulldozed it down and sent everyone running in just to overrun it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, like, they should have been able to repel an invasion of 1500 fighters with their normal border guarding troops, given that it's it's, it's Israel. Yeah, like, it's crazy. Um, But yeah, they just kept causing so many problems in the West Bank. And then, you know, Hezbollah is a bigger threat there. They have other borders to guard. But, you know, they're on good terms with Egypt and Jordan, which covers a lot of their total border, like mass. And Israel's like the size of New Jersey and has like 10 million people. So, like, it shouldn't be that damn hard to keep your borders properly guarded. I mean, there's the wall, too. I mean, they just bulldozed it down, but still. Yeah, well, I think that pivots over kind of nicely to the global south, because I know you're a little bit more, I don't want to say an expert, but you're definitely a lot more knowledgeable on this subject than me. Um, I I remember when I first heard of you, you had mentioned that you were kind of covering a lot of stuff going on over in Africa. And this kind of intrigues me because this is kind of an area where like, okay, so we know Somalia has been an issue for the United States. I think that's the longest going war currently because since Afghanistan um, ended, then Somalia has been the longest going war. And it was already longer than Afghanistan because they've been there since 1991. Yeah. Sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then now you also have China with the Belt and Road Initiative over there kind of People say debt trap diplomacy, but from what I've no, that's heard, nonsense. yeah, it, it actually seems like they're actually treating the African people pretty well. So um, I, I guess kind of give a brief overview of the global South and kind of what got you interested in it. We can kind of go from there. Well, um, it kind of just happened to be the case that I've been meaning to write about Africa for some time. And then when I started writing, trying to write about the Sahel, my initial interest was simply that Burkina Faso is so incredibly violent. Like if you were to just like read antiwar.com or whatever, you would like every day see like a, a terrorist attack killed like 30 people in Burkina Faso and it's not that big of a country. So I just started looking into that and it, it turned out that it's a really interesting story. And I'm, I mean, I'm kind of a Francophile in general, although I also kind of hate the French empire. So, I mean, I'm ambivalent about it, but I, I'm interested in France generally. Um, so, you know, the combination of those things got me into it. And then there's just a really shortage of anyone intelligent writing about it. You know, the only uh, libertarian type person, well, the only anti-war person, I shouldn't say libertarian, he's like a, a leftist, but that writes about it is Nick Terse, you know, he right. does, who does a really good job, but he's only one mm-hmm. person and he does more original reporting about exact aspects of the U.S.'s military role there. He doesn't do so much like high level analysis, you know, Um and then, I mean, there's a few other good people I found. Like this guy, Alex Thurston, writes for, I think I have his name right, writes for the Quincy Institute Sounds pretty regularly. Um, but yeah, it's, it was mostly just a lack of 
other people covering it and then finding that, you know, there, there was interest in it. And then there's, you know, Pliny, the elder said uh, out of, in his encyclopedia sort of thing said out of Africa, there's always something new. Um, and it just is the case that once you're caught up with any of it, there's always something going on in Africa, which is probably actually why it's not popular for major newspapers. Cause it's more than people can keep up with. You know, there's always something, uh, but yeah, that just got me generally interested in it. And then, I mean, I'm also just interested in like influence struggles and how the uh, major powers like use the world as a battleground to kind of the detriment of everyone involved. Cause it's a really reductionist view of how society and the globe works and whatnot, yeah. which is the same thing with China. Like, like Africa is an enormous continent. It has a lot of resources yeah. that are underutilized. Its labor is drastically underutilized. Like 8% right. of Africans work in wage labor or whatever. Um, and then I don't think that counts ones that uh, get a salary for like bullshit government jobs, you know, but of like being like factory workers and, you know, stuff like that, like 8% of Africans, yeah, are wage earners, which of course makes it hard to collect taxes and build infrastructure and do all this other stuff like this. And so like there's massive amounts of investment that can be made on the continent. There's absolutely no reason that, you know, the U.S. and China and Russia can't all just go bid on the same project and have the person that gives them the better deal get it. You know, mm -hmm. if China builds something that is terrible and overpriced or whatever, like other countries will see that and want to go a different way on the next one. There's 53 countries in Africa, I believe, 54. Yeah. Some of them are in dispute, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's 1.4 billion people now. So Africa oh, wow. Africa has the same population as India or China, though it's as big as like India, China, um, and America combined and, and oh, more wow. so actually. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's really interesting in general, but it's, it's just an incredibly reductionist view the way that they deal with it. And, and, you know, Africa is, sovereign debts are are really bad but they're like the world bank and stuff like that and for the most part china's projects are just based on the premise that it's gonna make money and you're gonna pay china back over time like it's not a debt trap to build a dam for someone and then have them pay you back with the electricity it generates you know uh, so it's, okay it, you know it's it's really ridiculous like even in niger the uh there was this big coliseum in Niamey, the capital, where, you know, the, the junta had this big rally to show that, you know, they're popular or whatever. And that was built by a Chinese firm, um, just as a random example of, you know, the work that they're doing there. And no one there was complaining about China. They're complaining about France, which in, in all fairness, to an extent, France kind of has like a boogeyman role there where people attribute way more power to it than it actually has on the continent. But at the same yeah. time, they've been running their infrastructure, the ports on the continent. They intentionally kept it impoverished because they can make more money off of it that way they never bothered to build railroads in niger or chad like they've never had any railroads at all so france was sending people france was seriously for a long time sending people like two thousand miles on camel back to change colonial administrators in these places like there's no wow. other way they would have got them there mm -hmm. um so i mean it's it's really it's all it's all crazy and it's uh it also provides really interesting examples of competing forms of government because the British and the French and the Portuguese, you know, the Germans, et cetera, they all managed their colonies very different. The way that they set up the governments, they left them with different forms of government. 
Um, you know, and you have some like Botswana that actually got someone competent to run it when it, you know, took power. And now it's like a middle income country with it looks like a highly functional government and, a, you know, a, a society that's actually going well. And then others are absolutely terrible because they've been mismanaged by people trying out weird socialist experiments on them. There's really everything there. Wow. Yeah, that's geez. So kind of moving on with the uh, China Belt and Road Initiative in Africa, um, the one thing that um, a friend of mine, Tommy Sammons, who you might know from the Libertarian Institute, um, great guy. I talk to him all the freaking time, but his wife is actually from Africa mm-hmm. and he had went over there initially to like, you know, obviously meet her. And then eventually she moved back over here and they live in Texas together. But um, he had mentioned that basically China handles a lot of the infrastructure and then the U.S., touches like a lot of like the um like the the power and like the different energy sector there and he said that like there's like an understanding like an unspoken kind of deal there now i don't know how much you know about that but i'm kind of curious your thoughts on that when um Um, i do know that uh france has been in charge of a lot of the oil extraction in francophone africa Mm -hmm. and that it's been a big deal trying to get a pipeline from the niger delta up um like across Algeria to the Mediterranean. That's a big thing they talk about a lot. Uh, The U.S. is not nearly as invested in Africa as you might think. The volume of trade is much lower than it reasonably should be. Mm -hmm. Um, But China is like much more interested in doing actual business there. The U.S. and Russia, to an extent, are much more interested in the government, in arms sales, in, Mm -hmm. you know, sending NGOs there to... I don't know, give them weird experimental vaccines. They'll probably make their kids sterile. Um, like any okay. number of things. Yeah. So, okay. Actually, I have to tell you the craziest story. This is one of the most interesting things I've ever heard in a Twitter, in a Twitter space. Sure. So okay. I was talking to this person from Niger. And so like 80% of people in Niger are subsistence farmers or something like that. Like their literacy rate, what we consider literacy is like 15%. And so they live in these, if you look at a picture of them, they're seriously like Neolithic settlements, basically, except there's like one paved road. So I was asking this guy who's Nigerian, but he's both from one of the like desert minorities, but is also clearly upper class. And I was like asking him, you know, how do these people get news? Um, they, uh, you know, like what, what are the people in the country hearing about what's going on? How do they learn, you know, that a junta has taken place and all this other stuff like that. And he said, well, there's, you know, there's BBC radio in, I'm blanking on the language they speak right now, but anyway, there's BBC radio in their native language, which, you know, they share with people in Northern Nigeria. And, you know, that's very popular. A lot of people listen to that. And then there's like French broadcast services that they listen to because most of them know French. But he was telling me that these people, uh, that they usually will own a really cheap Chinese made phone, even if they only charge it at the market once a week or only if they um, uh, if they have like a tiny solar panel to charge it with. And then, you know, they'll buy minutes on like cards because that's how phone works in a lot of places. And so these really low education people, they do have like WhatsApp and they have basic literacy. So like they share these memes, you know. And it's impossible to, it's really hard to get them to understand how things actually are because they just have really low education rates, but they are literate enough to use a phone and to get memes, you know, telling them this or that's going on. But he told me the guy that got deposed, Bazoom, was trying to get their fertility rate down because uh, in Niger, the average uh, 
there's 6.75 kids per woman is their fertility rate, oh, which wow. is, is insane. And these people, yeah. some of them, he said there are people, you know, say polygamy, that it's like a guy that doesn't do anything and has like four wives and 30 children that are like all begging on the streets, you know. So mm-hmm. he is, and I mean, bear in mind, there's probably some classism in how this guy was describing it. But uh, he was telling me that, you know, the president was trying to get the fertility rates down because like, look, we can't feed this many kids. Our population's grown from... 3 million to <laughs> 24 million in the last 40 years. Like we, you know, we can barely feed ourselves. Like, you know, you need to start having fewer kids. Like, these people need to know, quit all the fucking hunts. man. No, but no. So these here, I'm not even joking. Yeah. These people that live in like huts in rural Niger and our subsistence farmers thought that he was part of a Bill Gates eugenics conspiracy to like sterilize them and remove them because they this they know this oh in, Niger, in yeah. Niger. Yeah, the peasants know uh-huh. that theory. And it it's just speaks volumes to it's like an insane story about like memes like spreading information to people, you know. Yeah. But like further, it just speaks volumes to how counterproductive all of their, you know, their outreach and vaccine work and, you know, is yeah. trying to end polio or this and that. Like uh, how bad of an impression. The, the globalists ain't doing the, too well, Niger. Yeah, it's, I, I, it's just one of the funniest things I've ever heard. But at the same time, it's so believable. You know, so they're like, no, I'm not going to do what he says. I'm going to have seven children. Like, because yeah. you're trying to sterilize me for eugenics. Like, yeah, it's crazy. It's a, that's actually really, really funny because like, This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like, uh, it, it kind of gets to the bigger picture of if you listen to Peter Zihan at all. And yeah, he's he's shaky sometimes, but he also has some good information. And um, as countries more like get more and more industrial and as our living standards start to go up and up and up, we no longer need to have as many kids. So like, you know, here in the U.S., most people only have like one or two kids. Like it's yeah. gone are the days that people have three, four, five, six, seven kids like that. That does not happen anymore. But it's largely because, you know, we don't need all the extra hands around the house to raise the other kids and then take care of the farm like you don't need that many bodies anymore so i mean really the argument should be well why don't we if you want to and i'm not recommending that they do this or anything like that but they really want people to stop having so many kids raise their living standards like give them more free markets allow them you know industrial equipment so they could be more productive or something like that give them something to raise their living standards and then eventually they're going to stop having kids because they won't need farms and shit like that anymore. oh yeah well i mean it's it's definitely is one of those well-known things it's the same thing about preserving the environment like when you get more money is actually when people start caring about it right. i mean at the same time 
Niger is a naturally poor country in that it's like marginal desert land, you know, small areas of it are good for farming. It's distant from everything. So like Mm -hmm. France did intentionally underdevelop it, but in the best circumstances, it would be hard to make this specific country prosperous. And Mm -hmm. further, it's it's like a lot. I mean, it's not really, I don't know if I'd say it's overpopulated, but it has an awful lot of people for the amount of land that is actually arable. It's really not clear what they're going to do with all the people that, you know, they have produced now the median age. I don't remember what the median age is, but it's really, really young, of course, with that many people having that many kids. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, a lot of Africa has some similar problems. Yeah, median age in Nigeria is 17.2 years. In um, Nigeria or Niger? Oh, uh, my bad, my bad. Hold on. Sorry. Because Niger is a lot poorer than Nigeria. Oh, geez. But... Holy shit. 14 and a half years yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. The Niger, yeah, Niger population is equivalent to 0.34% of the world population. Um, Ranks number 54 in the list of countries by population. Um, The population density is 21 per kilometer, 56 people per mile, and the median but age. Like 80% of it's uninhabited because it's wow. the Sahara Desert. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, in Nigeria, uh, over 50% of the electorate is under 35, which means they're between the ages of 18 and 35. There's more people between 18 and 35 than over 35. Yeah. Yeah. Than over 35 in the entire country. But so the thing about this, um, you know, Malthusians notwithstanding is that Africa has actually been really, it's been underpopulated for a really long time because of uh, like colonialism brought, you know, like diseases both to people and to cattle. There were like a lot of conflicts, uh, yeah. You know, changing the ways of agriculture caused a lot of problems. You know, slavery depopulated. Like a lot of people left Africa as slaves, both on the east and west coasts. Yeah. So it's it's actually had a huge shortage of human capital for a really long time. But at the same time, if they don't have like free enough economies and enough in like capital invested and you know the growth of industry. Then, then like Africans at the rate that they're growing are really are just going to flood America and Europe in, in numbers that no one will ever tolerate while Africa fails to develop. But, you know, they, they also have the conditions that led to the industrial revolution in the United States and Europe with the advantage that the technology already exists and there's, you know, outside capital to be invested in it. The problem is that, you know, all of these countries basically want to keep them impoverished because they think that a lack of development helps the environment, even though people that make under $4,000 a year statistically don't give a shit about the environment because they're living hand to mouth and they'll throw garbage on the street and they don't care at all. You know, it's a well-known thing. So I guess that kind of begs the question then, like, so you said that they may flood America and Europe in numbers that people won't tolerate. Um, I, I, I don't know the exact numbers. I know there's a lot of people coming through our Southern border um, through Mexico, um, and now, like, as to whether or not America can handle that or not, I'm, I'm not the person to ask about that. I just don't know. But, like, so with the Belt and Road Initiative and then, like, the – I know Africa is, like, they're really – their standard of living over there is greatly increasing, like, fast. Like, they're getting connected to the power grids and then, you know, obviously the Belt and Road Initiative, they're getting a lot of infrastructure. Um, what if they do start to kind of rise on their own? Like, did – this is going to sound bad, but, like, you know, I know – the intelligence in some parts of Africa is not that great, but like, and, and I'm not the person to talk to on this either, but do you think like it might be a potential, like they don't have necessarily the faculties, like the mental faculties to deal with that kind of stuff? Or do you okay, think? Okay. So there's else? just two points that I need to make about this. 
Sure. Firstly, if you actually look into this, those studies that those people are using are so bad that you basically okay. have to be retarded to believe that. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, I've so, never verified any of this. Okay, stuff. so okay. I'm not even joking. There's not been any nationwide studies on um, on national IQ, mm-hmm. and the point of I, the main reason IQ tests are given is to help mentally disabled people make strategies for how to survive in the world while they're mentally disabled, you know? So like these people want you to believe that Botswana has an average IQ of 67, which would mean that okay. like one third of the people are nonverbal basically, like if your IQ is that low. Yeah. And so in, in South Korea, they did widespread tests of college students. So they are like comparing the average college student in South Korea to the average person in in an asylum because he's retarded in African countries and mm-hmm. are saying that that's the national IQ of these places. Sure. That said, so I mean, there there is presumably some genetic factor in IQ, but there's not a good enough studies to know about that. But right. IQ does also have huge environmental factors. So yes. someone growing right. up in a suburb in Sweden and going to Swedish schools and everything like that is going to grow up with a higher IQ than someone in the slums of Lagos, you know, mm-hmm. but at the same time, at the time of the industrial revolution in England, you know, the kids were living in those conditions and everything else like that. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I, so I would say that those not been good studies. Sub-Saharan Africa does have basically every social problem you could name that would prevent the development of high IQs among the population when they're growing up. In terms of like malnutrition, a lot of different diseases, lack of oh, access yeah. to specialist education, uh, high levels mm-hmm. of violence, overcrowding, unclean air, you know, any, so they basically do have all the problems that would reduce that. So, I mean, I, I do think you would find that these Sub-Saharan African countries have lower, um, have lower average IQs than, you know, like Northern Europe or yeah, like uh, most of America. At the same time, Nigerians are the most successful group of like any group in both the U S and the UK Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the amount of money they make and their educational attainment. But that's because they have really bad brain drain like India. So it's, it's an issue. All of the smartest people leave Nigeria. So then the, Mm. you know, so, I mean, I would also say that would lower Nigeria's average IQ because all the most intelligent people have been leaving for the last 40 years, you know, 50 years. They say that there are more Nigerian doctors outside of Nigeria than in the country of Nigeria. And they have like a major shortage of healthcare providers in the country, but there are tons of Nigerian doctors in the U S and in the UK. Oh, that's fascinating, actually. Yeah, it's very so, it's very similar to India in that regard. Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. The one thing that I kind of always question about the IQ stuff is that like when you look at um, East Asians and Ashkenazi Jews, they're the two groups in the world that have the highest IQ on average. But then uh, um, IQ, oh, I actually didn't know that either. IQ oh, yeah. See, so that's another thing. Certain, environmental. Yeah, yeah. By un- untreated parasites. They need some ivermectin. Um, <laughs> oh yeah actually yeah you're right no it is anti-parasitic but i, yeah, I was yeah. making a joke as well <laughs> yeah well they always call it horse dewormer but kind of that point um ashkenazi jews and east asians are like i'm sure everybody knows that like chinese people are legitimately like very racist against people that are not of their kind when it comes to like people actual chinese people like people from china and then when you look into like the cultural practices around family and stuff with Ashkenazi Jews, they're very, very tight in its structure. Like they're very, I don't want to say nepotistic. That might not be the right word, but like they don't want Jewish people mating with people outside of, you know, their own religion, their race and everything like that. And then when you look at it, you know, they're very, very healthy people. They're higher IQ on average. 
I almost wonder if like in some of these African nations, if you repeated this kind of behavior that the East Asians and Ashkenazi Jews do for long enough, if you would see the IQ go up over time, if it, because that would be like fostering a more friendly environment to oh. the family. Well, I, Did I you follow what I'm saying? I have a theory about this that yeah. kind of in a way goes with what you're saying. Sure. Um, so, I mean, the IQ test, like it, it does mostly measure your ability to take an IQ test. Um, but, you know, like it's like with an SAT, like these are skills that are extremely valuable in college. If you're trying to be a lawyer or doctor or something, you know, it's like memorization, recall. Well, it's also, to yeah, it's supposed to be able to determine you're supposed to use abstract thinking and it's also like the timing that yeah but i mean and then you know there's stuff that's not that useful if you were like a subsistence farmer or if you're a logger or you know stuff like that um Mm -hmm. anyway so for one thing we've actually the the high iq people in our society have intentionally made our society more advantageous to high iq people than it would be naturally that's why there's freaking 30 page forms for every agreement and you can never get money back from a company because they're intentionally screwing over all the lower IQ people. It's, it's like a cabal <laughs> conspiracy that like Harvard and everything have, have done to us. I get our teeth um, the bones of the babies. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm a firm believer in this. But uh, <laughs> anyway, regarding the Chinese Nazi Jews, um, you know, China had those bureaucrat tests forever and then also had persistent famines so it stands to reason that they had higher fertility among people that were good at taking tests and good for passing the civil service exam you know and similarly the ashkenazi jews they made mostly made their living on trade they had high levels of literacy they did they did a lot of you know stuff that involved math etc so like it stands to reason in both of those groups for historical reasons that they might have had higher fertility among high iq people I mean, that's just my thought on that. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, so I, I guess we could kind of pivot back to Niger. Um, what exactly happened with the coup? Because it seems like everything's kind of cooled down, at least to my knowledge. Um, I, I keep up with Dave DeCamp quite a bit you yeah. know, between talking to him and listening to his show. But it seems like that, that stuff's mostly settled. Um, can you give kind of like a brief overview of what exactly happened there and if the U.S. people should be concerned? Uh, well, I mean – a few different things happened. Actually, recently they claimed that they foiled a, an attempt, a escape attempt from Bazoom because he um, is still under whatever form of house arrest. And they're, you know, trying to give you sob stories. That was also a really weird thing. And I'm like, oh, he doesn't have access to like clean water or power. Da, da, da. And it's like, that was the like, former n- president, right? Yeah, yeah. Bazoom, the former president. Sorry. But it's like, oh, so he's like 70% of Nigerians. That's your sob story is that he's living like the common people do there. Um but I guess that was his daughter, who, by the way, is a very beautiful woman who clearly never suffered from malnutrition as a child, um, is, uh, you know, I guess they said they thought that she was targeting that at the West and that it did not play well among the poor in Niger. Anyway, so he allegedly tried to escape recently, but basically they did finally kick the French out, which was their main goal. Um, there's a bit of disagreement between the State Department and the U.S. military about how to proceed in Niger. Um, the Agadez drone base there is the most expensive construction project in the history of the Air Force, even though they call it a uh, small footprint or whatever. But, you know, so they're not going to want to let it go. And it has a it has an impressive range, um, you know, of covering a huge area of the Sahara in the range of like a, of a drone. So people in the military were pretty close to some of the coup leaders, but the State Department was really hesitant to give them a waiver. Um 
I'm blanking on, it's called a section something waiver. Regardless, you're not supposed to give military aid to any government where there's been a non-democratic transition and it's not led by civil government, but there's a waiver program for this. They give them to- For governments that we probably coup. They give them to any number of countries all the time. Like for example, Azerbaijan, they give one to every year. Um, Chad, well, actually the Azerbaijan one's for different reasons, but you know, uh, so Chad- was supposed to be transitioning away from the military government. And then the president died while visiting troops or fighting rebels, incidentally, making him the first head of state who has died in battle in like 100 years. <clears throat> um, it's wow. very uncommon in the modern era that a head of state dies in combat. Um, anyway, so then his son took over, which wasn't supposed to happen. There's like a transitional council, but he kind of cooed it. And so the son runs the place now. But they're a, basically a French-aligned military government so france got everyone to give them a waiver and it was really controversial um it upset a lot of the people that you know like oh we're spreading democracy we have to support democracy this and that so the the state department people were really hesitant to um to give the waiver to niger i thought they should have just done it because that whole premise is idiotic in the first place and who cares and their interests are so badly damaged in africa they can't be messing around with this sort of thing um and so the military was willing to work with them. Their coup wasn't really anti-American. It was anti-French. Mm-hmm. But the State Department was really against doing that. So they did finally declare it a coup. They were avoiding declaring it a coup because then they would have to do all of this. Um, so I believe now they've declared it a coup, but they haven't given the waiver yet. Something on this just happened, though I'm blanking. That guy, Alex Thurston, I mentioned, just published something about this at, respons- at Responsible Statecraft. But I don't remember exactly how the story progressed. Um, anyway, I mean, in short, the U.S. is finding a way to work with them one way or another, but they have expelled the French. That's the long and short of it. Okay, so in my mind, when I hear they're anti-French, you would think the U.S. would kind of have a problem with that because they're, we would consider them a partner. So, um, Yes, the U.S. is having to distance itself from France in West Africa or give up all of its influence completely. they kind of been forced into this. And France's uh, okay. issue is that they don't have a clear internal or external justification for what they're doing in Africa. They're not bringing civilization. They can't admit they're profiting from it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, have, they, have, they can't uh, be openly paternalistic anymore. So they have nothing they can tell themselves or other people about what they're doing in Africa, which is fatal to any sort of imperialist mission like what they were doing there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Macron doesn't have any even Africa policy. And so basically they're just getting kicked out of one place to the next and they're ultimately going to be leaving Africa um, one way or another. So, I mean, the U.S., this is on some of the advice of, you know, the smarter people watching this, has essentially had no choice but to distance itself from um, from France in Africa because the America is actually still pretty popular, at least reasonably popular enough in most of Africa to continue uh, having a high level of involvement. Okay, so basically, like you said, they're kind of keeping France at an arm's distance so that way they could maintain influence over in Africa. Do you think this is a play to kind of like keep China at bay? Or do you think it's just because the U.S. wants to maintain its global hegemony? Oh, they're definitely being reactive. It's not a play to do anything. Um, they're, I mean, they're doing what they have to do because Niger was set on kicking out France and not kicking out the United States mm-hmm. and was not set on kicking out the United States, though it would have also been fine with them leaving. 
Yeah. So they're just doing what they have to do. Nothing that's going on in Africa is part of any kind of grand strategy. They're failing on every front there. Um, and, and nothing they're doing is really working properly. So really, really America and France and to a lesser extent, the UK are just reacting to one failure after another while, um, both Chinese and Russian presence expands. I don't really write about the Chinese aspect that much. It's not actually as big as people would want it to be, especially because they don't mess okay. around with the government aspects, whereas mm-hmm. Russia is much more interested in getting people diplomatically on side. And Russia's arms business is really profitable. So, that, you know, they want to sell them guns. They, you know, still do have Wagner mercenaries in Africa, which is very profitable. Mm-hmm. Right. So China's just not very involved in the aspects of this that i more personally deal with which is like diplomacy and military less so than economic but overall it's i mean the the whole concerns about china and africa are completely overblown that's almost like everything else when it comes to china when it comes to the farmland the spying did you name the issue they blow the china stuff out of the water but um yeah to to that point of uh russia so when it comes like their military services you know arms sales and then mercenaries um how big of a deal is that in africa would you say that's a bigger deal than china and america or like where would you put that and like how much of a deal is it there in africa well so it's kind of a funny thing if you um we try to use like Twitter spaces with Africans. Usually the ones that are speaking in English language spaces are like Western educated and involved with, I don't know, various think tanks and mm-hmm. are really pro us and are trying to get you uh, on side, especially of their particular ethnic group or whatever, you know, they think if they can get to you first, you'll just be stupid enough to prefer their ethnic group over all of the other ones, <laughs> instead of like having an understanding of the broader picture. Yeah. Um, so you get a lot of them that are like really pro-America, but the lower class people are really, really pro-Russia. There's a sort of neo-Pan-Africanism mm-hmm. sort of thing going on where um, people are really in favor of the juntas because they don't see a different way to make changes. A big part of the issue is they're so damn young. You know, the population, everyone's like 20. They've never lived under military government before. They don't have a broad enough understanding. You know, they don't have a mature enough understanding of life to realize the mistakes yeah. that they're making. Um <laughs> But so, I mean, overall, like there was polling done on this and the the majority of countries in Africa want to work with all of the world powers. Like that's what they see as being ideal is having been on good relations with everyone instead of being pulled from one influence to another, you know. Um, but regarding Russia, it's been a bigger deal in the in the specifically in the Sahel countries that have had the coup because Russia is willing to work with them. Um, Russia's military equipment is much cheaper and much easier to use. So it is actually a better fit for the level of like resources and training that they're able to provide compared to America's extremely expensive, extremely complex weapons. Um, I believe Russia has fewer contracts relating to, you know, requiring Russians on the ground, maintaining it all sorts of stuff like that. They don't harass them about human rights regarding, uh, you know, the, the strategies that they employ to fight terrorism, which, I mean, are not working, but regardless, the, the junta still like it. So, I mean, I would say it's, it's, it is a big deal, but it's still overplayed in a lot of ways. But I mean, like Mali changed its vote at the Security Council to vote in favor of Russia regarding issues with Ukraine, which only mm-hmm. like three total, two or three countries have changed since the war began. So, I mean, I mean, 
Mali, the, the Mali and Burkina Faso, Guinea, Niger sort of axis is mostly Russia aligned now, though Niger less so because it's like a more recent thing. But uh, yeah, Mali, Burkina Faso and and um, and Guinea are pretty legitimately Russia aligned. And then Russia has a lot of influence in Libya and um, and Algeria as well. So, I mean, it's definitely like growing there, but I don't know. I mean, the U.S., like the Biden administration, what they care about is harassing Uganda about gay rights. Like they don't <laughs> have any they're not serious people. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're stuck in a global chessboard mindset but they're like playing checkers while drooling it's, it's mm-hmm. absurd so i mean russia's really expanding but it wouldn't be hard to do much better because actually like a lot of these people do like the idea of freedom and democracy they like american products um you know african-american culture is very very popular in africa uh you know in terms of like football teams like uh, rappers you know that sort of thing uh i mean and then also actually American country music is very popular in a lot of rural Africa as well. Um, hmm. I don't know if you ever saw that video. And so it's like, you know, they're, they're blacks. So they're really good dancers. So there's like crazy videos. <laughs> no, there's crazy videos of Africans yeah. like line dancing to like, uh, um, to like the gambler and songs like that. And they're like better than you've ever seen anyone in Texas. Oh do. You know? Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> That's great. But uh, well, yeah. you know, so like these rural areas, so they're like farmers and ranchers and stuff like that. So, you know, they're out in cowboy boots wearing cowboy hats. Like that is how they live because they're, you know, out on small farms and whatnot. So it's like what they relate to. It's very popular in uh, Anglophone Africa. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of things that they like about America. It's just a matter of encouraging investment and treating them like reasonable partners and not constantly haranguing them about you know, their culture, you know, like Montesquieu and a lot of other people say that, you know, when you're managing an empire, there's absolutely no reason to impose your laws on other countries. All you need is like basic obedience, which I mean, means, you know, to either like accept your goods or pay whatever tribute or send you troops or whatever you want from them, Mm -hmm. which in this case would be getting their raw materials and then being a consumer market, you know, is all we actually need from Africa in terms of what benefits us. Sure. Um, So, there's no reason to mess with them with their customs. Africa has very deep-seated cultural opposition to homosexuality, though weird people try to claim that's something Europeans brought there. That's, you know, that, that homophobia is something Europeans brought with them. That's not true at all. It's completely, mm-hmm. complete nonsense. So, I mean, it's just a matter of, like, leaving them to their customs and not messing with the things that don't matter. And they're happy to have American investment, happy to have us buy their products, happy to use our products and take in our yeah, culture. Yeah they just act like reasonable people and sell them coca-cola and blue jeans instead of flooding <laughs> weapons into their war zones and Word. destabilizing them and causing terrorism to explode in their region everything would be fine yeah okay so i guess uh that makes a, a good pivot over to burkina faso i know some stuff had happened there recently i have not kept up with this at all so um maybe you give a little history on uh, burkina faso and like you said there's been a lot of violence going on so i know just kind of like a overview of what's going on well, so Burkina Faso and, and Mali are very similar situations. Um, really, the main difference is that uh, Burkina Faso had this revolutionary type leader, Thomas Sankara, in, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. He's the one that changed the name from um, Upper Volga to Burkina Faso, which means uh, land of the upright men in a native language there, which is a total flex to force France to call you that, by the way. When you're with their former colony, they have to like address you as being from the land <laughs> of the upright men. Um, anyway... Uh, so he, he was murdered by his like best friend who then 
was in power for like 30 years with U.S. backing. And they are led by this now after they had the double coup pattern of a lot of them, which is where there's a coup and they put a transitional government in place. And then either the same person or someone else, in this case, someone else overthrows the coup government Mm. within like a year and then doesn't set up a transition to democracy. So they're led by this 34-year-old colonel named Ibrahim Traore, who is very much styled as like a revolutionary leader. He's uh, considered a very good-looking guy by the ladies. Um, he's very experienced in their uh, wars on terror and whatnot. And yeah, he's very much styled himself as like a revolutionary Marxist. Uh, I mean, it would Thomas Sankara is definitely who he's styling himself as, but, you know, like a Che Guevara type figure or something like that, though mm-hmm. he's not nearly as ideological. He has a lot of exciting... Uh, anti-colonial language about you know taking their land back uh how they need to be able to feed themselves and eat at their own table and he's drawn like a lot closer to russia but nothing is actually getting better there it's extremely violent their uh war on terror is very close to their capital Mm. you know these terror gangs there are much more like bandits and what we think of as terrorists. There's huge amounts of them on motorcycles that go in and, you know, loot raid villages, burn everything down. It's really terrifying. Um, The one positive thing is that the U S and France were preventing Niger's previous government from cooperating with the coup governments of Burkina Faso and Mali. But the reality is the terrorists exist kind of at the center of the three countries, like where they border. So, you know, the terrorists were crossing the border and the troops weren't the classic problem here let's uh let's do this because i had a map pulled up but i think oh, it's okay. a good chance okay yeah so anyway the- um yeah so I mean, people, people can see it's a small country there's burkina faso and then you know the mm-hmm. terrorists are the most centered at kind of the corner between those three countries is a big part of where they are um oh yeah and it's niger they're really close to the capital actually as well um but mm-hmm. Uh, Burkina Faso also has a southern insurgency from like Boko Haram type people in uh, coming out of Nigeria, as well as the other insurgency that is started in Mali. Um, mm-hmm. But basically now Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso have a military agreement, which is a really good thing because it means they can chase the terrorists across the border without any problem. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge advantage to the terrorists. However, still nothing that they're doing is really working. So, I mean, People have this idea that the military government is going to somehow be better, you know, at fighting because they're the military, but they're not usually very competent. And they're usually using the exact same strategies the civilian government used anyway. Mm -hmm. But I mean, really horribly bad security massively undermines democracy, like any sort of democratic government. And, you know, people want a strong man to, you know, like if my life's not going to be good, I could at least not have my daughter stolen by roving terrorists on motorcycles, you know. Mm -hmm. So people have the idea that the military government's going to fix it. It's very unlikely to, though. Ibrahim Traore specifically is at least a somewhat inspired leader, you know. Mm -hmm. He, He maybe has more of a chance of fixing things than the average one, but it's not really optimistic with any of them. I mean, the terrorists are basically winning in all of those countries. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. So, okay. So where do you think the global South and like the continent of Africa, because it seems like it's a mess. 
Um, do you think things are going to get better over the next like couple years or how do you think it's going to play out? Because it seems like there's been more stuff going on recently there, like within the last couple of years than there has been for the last couple of decades. And it may just be because I haven't really paid attention, but it also does seem like there's just been, you know, with the coup and then, you know, the stuff going on in Somalia and some of the other stuff, it seems like there's a lot more going on there. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. Cause you're, you're the guy on this. At least um, from my perspective. Well, so I don't know. I mean, it was really, you know, after they overthrew Libya, like everything flooded into there and got worse. So, I mean, it's really the the era of Islamic terror that, you know, the U.S. and Israel did a million things to bring about uh, has really taken a toll <laughs> on the more Islamic areas of Africa. Because, you know, uh, there's not that many Muslims very far south of the Sahel in mm-hmm. Western Africa. In, in East Africa, Islam goes down a fair amount farther because there were all the um, Islamic traders on the coasts there and everything else. Um, mm-hmm. But so, you know, that's a, that's a big problem. Um, I mean, overall, I'm optimistic, though, because the younger generation, there's a lot of them. They're very energetic. They want better lives. Um, and, you know, they're out of a colonial mindset. But it's it's really the western powers can't can't move past how they view things and actually like see africa as an actual partner um you know see it as a continent that can be strong that can stand on that will ultimately be able to stand on its own that's gonna you know have its problems improve but i mean at the same time you know it's really funny because like they're so upset about like chinese manufacturing and stuff like that mm-hmm. and it's like okay you idiots realized you could invest in manufacturing in both Central America and Africa and deal with the immigration problem that we have while making yourself less reliant on China while actually improving the lives of the people there. You know, yeah. like that there's raw materials that you could be using. Oh, not only that, you would have man- more reliable allies as well. Yeah, well, exactly. So like, it's, it's really frustrating because they're the, the ones that created this situation where we're so reliant on China. And like, I, I actually do agree that it's a in a variety of ways is a national security threat that there are all of these key products that we can only get from china you know but they're the ones who made the economic decisions that led to that there were a million ways to avoid getting in that situation but they found it you know profitable to let everything go to china so i mean i i do think that there's a lot that can be done to encourage investment and trade with these these countries because i mean both Central America and Africa, like what they need is factories. Like there's honestly nothing else to it. Like they have, um, they just simply have higher population growth and they have the growth of people that work for wages and they had really low rates for the work for wages anyway. And they just don't have the amount of, you know, manufacturing capacity that they need to ever be wealthy. But, you know, we are in this situation where they're so upset about us being so reliant on China. So it's like, Oh, just, invest in other countries that can make those things they can you know send the stuff to mexico to be assembled further and then shipped up it's not complicated yeah i agree so my buddy kevin here had a good comment um my favorite is carbon emissions argument about china and india's industry uh they're the biggest polluters no shit we exported pollution well not only that kind of to this point they also have very very large populations there they're very productive and like the only pushback i might give you and i'm not even sure if this is really like pushback but like i don't think it's in china's interest to isolate all this stuff and keep to themselves because they have to import they import 
billions, literal billions of dollars worth of food from the U.S. every year. And part of the reason why they wanted the uh, Ukrainian and Russian war to kind of, you know, go hush hush and be peaceful is because they want to get a lot of that grain that Ukraine has. So like China, they don't have the ability to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. They're already hostile with their neighbors. They have those border disputes with India where people are literally fist fighting and falling off cliffs and shit. Wait, um, so oh, nice. you can finish Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. But yeah, like it's just in my mind, when you know China and see how much they have to import, and plus, like, they don't have any good land to farm on. Um, in the farmland that they do have to farm on, you know, it's like a little bit of it, I think like 30% of it's done by hand. Um, they're not really set up to just say, All right, guys, we're we're locking our doors. Like it just it wouldn't benefit them at all. I mean, in a sense, but I mean, Russia is also a major food exporter and they still get along with them. But what I was going to say is, I mean, this, this carbon thing's nonsense in the first place. Like carbon is what plants breathe. They grow more leaves to take in more of it (laughs) if there is more of it. But also, you know, what's ridiculous is they talk about, they have all these fancy systems for sequestering carbon, which just means to bury underground. Yet they won't let anyone make new landfills, which would literally just put the freaking okay. carbon back in the ground. Well, like yeah. it's, it's all insane. And, and to that point as well, you know what else sequesters carbon back into the soil? Cows. <laughs> like yeah, well, like, yeah, like they, that's literally part of their life cycle. Is that you know they eat, they shit, they piss on the ground, and then you they move to a different area and they do the same thing. And that cycle over a lifetime does sequester sequester more carbon into the soil. So like if you quit trying to mow everything down and put up strip malls and all this other stuff, you'll have a pretty good environment if you let the bison and the ruminants do what they're going to do where they're supposed to do. But yeah, I mean, people are like, oh, if you put a newspaper in a landfill in 50 years, it still hasn't broken down. And like, oh, so you mean the carbon was sequestered underground where it stayed in a stable form and didn't go back into the environment? Like exactly (laughs) what you idiots claim you want? (laughs) It's it's absolutely insane. Oh my God, I hate those people so much. Yeah, no, dude, I, I totally feel that. Um, Brad, I, I really enjoyed this. If you all got anything else, um, go ahead, plug away what you got going on um, and where everybody can find you. Okay, well, I mean, my main website is the Wayward Rabbler com. It's on Substack. Uh, it's a newsletter where I write about any number of things, including what we've discussed. I'm on Twitter at, um, at Wayward Rabbler. Um, and then my wife and I also do a podcast on the Substack. It's now we changed the format. It's now Dispatches from Clown World, <laughs> where we talk about the most ridiculous things that have been going on. Um, this week's topic was Greta Thunberg's octopus was the main thing, you know, because they tried to say Greta Thunberg's <laughs> a secret Nazi. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it was a, a variety of discussions about the dumbest things that have been going on in discussing Israel. Um and then, uh, yeah, I sometimes write for the Libertarian Institute. I'm working on um, forming relationships with new publishers. I just have not got that far along in the process yet. And then I also um, have a busy week this week. I was on Patrick McFarland's show yesterday. So that's oh, nice. posting at any time. Awesome. And I'm actually on with Misty Winston again on Friday to talk about the article about Zaka that we were talking about at the beginning. Dude, that is absolutely incredible. Um Pat's been on the show many times. I consider him a very, very dear friend. So I can't wait to, I was, I was literally going to tell you, you should hook up with him, but that's, yeah. we had a really good conversation about the Zaka article yesterday. So yeah, he should be posting that at any time for all I know he did while we were having this conversation. Yeah, it's, it's possible. I keep up with him all the time. Me and him. In fact, we're talking quite a bit today as well. Um, and then, yeah, Misty is great. I just had her on last week. I'm going back on her show here in a couple of weeks, but, uh, yeah, Brad, we'll definitely do it again sometime. Um, if you have anything else, we'll close her out. 
Okay. All right. Thank you for having me. Good night, everyone. Of course. Night, guys. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.